from the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State University. Welcome to Democracy Works. I'm Jenna Spinelli. I hope your summer is off to a good start. While we are on summer break here at Democracy Works, we are excited to share an episode from the podcast Democracy-ish. This podcast is hosted by Danielle Moody and Wajahat Ali and is dedicated to fighting for democracy and helping you preserve your sanity at a time when both are under assault, something, as you know, we talk about a lot here on Democracy Works. In this conversation, Danielle and Wajahat talk with Eli Merritt, a political historian at Vanderbilt University, whose most recent book is Disunion Among Ourselves, A Political History of the American Revolution. They talk about the grounding for the place that we find ourselves in this moment in American democracy, the question of whether American democracy is at a tipping point, and if so, which direction does it fall? They get into all of that and more on this episode from the Democracy-ish podcast. If you enjoy what you hear, I hope you will check out Democracy-ish and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, here's the conversation with Eli Merritt. Welcome to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Wajah Lee. And we are so excited uh, to welcome on to Democracy-ish for the very first time, although I've had the pleasure, wonderful pleasure, uh, of interviewing um, Eli Merritt before. Um, but Waj, I will turn it over to you for your movie phone intro, deep I've intro. been waiting so long. Uh Eli Merritt is a political historian at Vanderbilt University, where he researches the ethics of democracy and the interfaces of demagogues and democracy. He is also the editor of How to Save Democracy, Inspiration and Advice from 95 World Leaders, as well as The Curse of Demagogues, Lessons Learned from the Presidency of Donald J. Trump. And you can read him on Substack on his newsletter, American Commonwealth. Uh, Eli uh, thank you so much for indulging me uh, and my immaturity. Uh, I look forward to doing that every love week. Phone. Uh, yeah. And Daniel just teased me up really well. But uh, you're the perfect guest for this moment because, first of all, you call a spade a spade, which is what I, I really appreciate. And, and you've been calling the presidency of Donald Trump demagoguery for the last few years. You've written about it, you know, Los Angeles Times, Mainstream Press. You've taught about it. You, you've written a book on it. And, and you seem to understand, like we do, that our democracy is in a fragile moment. And it seems that Donald Trump and the MAGA movement are actively attacking it. And I, I look at what's happening with Tennessee. Let's start with Tennessee. And a quick refresher for those uh, who are not in the news is that the Tennessee Republicans decided to punish mm-hmm. two of their youngest black Democratic lawmakers by expelling them from the House. Because these two young Democratic black lawmakers, and I'm going to stress black, uh, had the audacity to lead a peaceful protest outside of the chambers with what seems like a growing coalition of young Tennessee folks who are sick and tired of being shot and killed in mass shootings. Uh, they they uh, focused on three, uh, including a 60-year-old white woman, but they only chose to expel two. And what we're witnessing is kind of a backlash, Eli, is that young Tennessee, like white kids, these kids are marching with these two 
the the two Justins, as they're now known as, because GOP overplayed their hands and made them into stars. And these white kids in Tennessee are calling Republicans fascists. So break down this moment for me, and maybe I'm being too hopeful, Eli. Has the GOP overstepped its bounds? Mm. Are Republicans or those traditional conservative Republicans finally realizing this isn't their daddy's conservative movement, but this is a party of demagoguery? Uh, well, I, I, I firmly believe that what we witnessed uh, in Tennessee is another act of the self-sabotage of the Republican Party. I'll tell you that over the past week, I've gotten a number of texts and emails from folks saying, you know, I, I was born and raised in Tennessee. I now live in San Francisco, but I, I do some teaching at Vanderbilt. I'm in contact with Eli. I'm so sorry to hear what's going on politically in Tennessee. And I write back and I say, what are you talking about? Uh, this, to me, what is happening is actually wonderful for democracy. Mm. The, the expulsion, of course, was what's called in political science, constitutional hardball, completely inappropriate, a complete violation of democratic norms. But then I say this, I, I, I myself can cycle in and out of hope and despair for our democracy as most people. My wife and I sat and watched those two Justins for an hour and a half on the night of the expulsions. And then I've been sending people clips by video of both of their five-minute closing remarks. I mean, mm. how can you not see that and your heart soar mm -hmm. and you feel incredibly hopeful for democracy? So, of course, what happened again is, 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 is wrong, not necessarily unconstitutional, but it is, again, this concept of constitutional hardball, which can be very destructive to constitutions. But thank God for the two Justins. I, 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 they're going to go far. And those speeches are beautiful. I really do recommend anyone just take out the time to just find their closing remarks and just listen and find happiness. Yeah, I, you know, it, it's, it, but you're, you're right, because I think that in these moments in particular, we can get into a, fall into a place of despair, right? We're, we're coming off of, you know, we have to remember that the reason why this expulsion happened is because three children and three adults were murdered in, at a school right? Mm. At, a, at, a, at an elementary school, right? And here we are, but a few weeks later, and there was another shooting, another mass shooting, right? What? Um, what the protests, what the ground shaking that I think that we're seeing in Tennessee is indicative of is that this generation that is still in school, right? That is still in K through 12 are tired of dying. Yeah. They're tired of going to school afraid. And yep. when I watch these young people line the halls of the state capitol, you know, holding up, I saw little kids holding up their crayon drawings of a gun with a line through it and saying, care about us, you know, to, 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 to watch this part of um, point, Eli, we have reached, I, I feel like I say this too often, but because you are a historian and understand the trends, right? How does this fare, this moment that we're seeing in Tennessee, what we're seeing, you know, the response be um, from the people taking to the streets? Um, what does, how does this inflection point, right? Because every time that there's a mass shooting, every time that there was some, how does this inflection point measure up to the past inflection points that the Republicans' demagoguery, their fascism, their authoritarian, inclinations um 
have allowed us to see. What 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 is this moment? How does this moment, I guess, look yeah. different? Or if it falls in yeah. pattern, what pattern does it fall into? Yeah, I'll I'll answer that. Let me hold up something here. Some there may be video and audio. I'm holding up a book called Descent. Mm. The History of an American Idea by Ralph Young. So I, I think it's fundamentally important to see what's happening in Tennessee is falling within this tradition of, of dissent and civil disobedience. And a democracy can't survive without that. So the, the dissent that's going on there specifically with regard to mass shootings in schools is, there are many answers, but that's one of the most significant, I think. But in, in, in point of kind of thinking where we are in pivot points, I really believe that a good historical comparison to where we are now is the 1850s when there was only one political party on the right side of history. And that political party formed in 1854 was the Republican Party. And it was formed, I mean, really almost a single issue uh, platform, which was we're stopping the expansion of slavery. And it had that party had to form because none of the currently existing parties at that time would take up this incredibly important sort of fight against the barbarism of slavery. And for some time, we really only had one viable party that held the nation together, moved through a civil war. And by saying this, I'm not saying that I, I intend for us to move through a civil war. I think that we will. But I do think today the Democratic Party is that one party that is the hope of the future. Um, I, I just not long ago wrote a, a post or newsletter on my Substack American Commonwealth, and it's not my first one to uphold the Republic. The, the Democratic Party is the hope of the nation, but but in that I said the Democratic Party today is upholding the banner, carrying the banner of the Declaration of Independence today alone, and it's also mm -hmm. carrying the banner of the rule of law, and it's also carrying the banner of ethical leadership. And we can talk more about it, but those are some of the most important cornerstones of democracy. So I'm proud that, I mean, no party is perfect. And I actually recommend anyone on the fence, any Republican of conscience, any independent, I say, get behind this Democratic Party. Now is the time to do that because it is the pro-democracy, pro-constitution party. And it, you don't have to like everything in the party, but it needs you now. The country needs some institution or party to carry the banner so we make our way through the current crisis we're in. So folks can can get out of the Democratic Party later when the country is more safe, but I think everyone should recognize that comparison between the 1850s and today. Again, I'm just, I'm, I'm actually super excited about the Democratic Party. It's fantastic. In the 1850s, for those of you who are not students of history, it led to something called the Civil War. <laughs> Eventually, the most devastating uh, war for uh, Americans when it comes to American casualties. Uh, you know, we killed more Americans in Civil War than World War I or World War II and all the numerous wars uh, that America has engaged in in its brief short history. But it, it's that moment, uh, Eli, where, you know, when you talk about the future of democracy, you mentioned the Republican Party, and this is what concerns me. For better or worse, we have two major political parties, Democrats and Republicans. Yes, there are others, but let's just be honest that those are the two powerhouses, DC Marvel, right? And uh, back in the day, we're all old enough and gray enough to remember that we had massive disagreements with our uh, others uh, when it came to certain policies. But you had a John McCain uh, and you had a Mitt Romney who 
terrible policies, but at least believe, like you said, in the rule of law, mm-hmm. in democracy, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that Russia and Putin are terrible, that autocracies are bad, uh, that violent insurrections are not a good thing. Uh, if we forget, John McCain used to, uh, was the re- nominee in 2008. Mitt Romney was the nominee in 2012. Yeah. Liz Cheney was the number three ranked Republican about two years ago. And she is now excised from the party because even though she voted with Donald Trump about 95% of the time, she said, you know what? A violent insurrection that almost killed me is a step too far. So now we're with the GOP that has expelled all those three, Eli. And how can a democracy survive when it seems to me, and I want your analysis on this, like every week we see this, the Republican Party, to me, is committed to becoming a radicalized, weaponized, anti-democratic movement. You see Tennessee, you see them trying to stall uh, Alvin Bragg's prosecution or uh, ongoing uh, case. You see the weaponization uh, 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 of the different departments in the House. Uh, you see uh, Fox basically being Pravda. Uh, you, you know, I can go like through numerous examples. So how can we survive when one of the two major political parties that is given parity with the Democratic Party by mainstream institutions, to me, seems like it's completely committed to right-wing authoritarianism and says, you know what? Viktor Orban of Hungary, that's who we should be. Like, how do I say, I don't see myself out out of this when one of the two parties has so much power and we keep coddling it. And it just seems to me, and please disagree with me, disagree with me if you see I'm off with this, nothing, no opportunity that it's, it's had in the past three years uh, to moderate, it's chosen to double down on extremism to its own detriment to like losing elections. They're like, you know what? F it. We're still going to go down this, this rabbit hole of extremism. Uh, I'll say that, uh, that the absolute barbarism of the 1850s, of course, was slavery. And it's a worse barbarism, I think, but there's another terrible bar- barbarism now. And it is this combination of disinformation, demagoguery, corruption, and authoritarianism. So I know, like, as you, I think, alluded to earlier, kind of the, the dichotomization into good and bad and the forces of evil and the forces of, of, of good. But nevertheless, I do see that is, there is a battle going on between ethical constitutional democracy and mm-hmm. demagoguery, corruption, and authoritarianism. And each, each party represents one of those. And so I simply think that the forces of the, rep- the Democratic Party represents, which is true equality, and again, ethical constitutional democracy, it simply has to win. So Alvin hmm. Braggs represents that, for example. Alvin Braggs represents the rule of law. So these things simply have to win. If the rule of law does not, I'm not meaning, I'm not suggesting that Trump has to go to jail. But the process of his indictment and him going, him standing trial for that is essential. The rule of law, what we see now, what we first saw that the Republicans doing under, under the cult of personality of Donald Trump is, is poisonous disinformation about free and fair elections. Fundamental, disinformation is a bad period, but disinformation about cornerstones of democracy is very dangerous. So now they've turned the disinformation demagoguery to the rule of law. These things are extremely dangerous, and it is difficult for our political parties to go into demise today, mainly because of all the moneyed interest within them. But it is my hope. I, I don't. I think the Republican Party is beyond repair. 
Mm-hmm. We cannot predict the future. New parties do come and go, but this party is a failed party. I mean, it's in addition to all the things that you've said, highly destructive and unconstitutional. But I'm I'm waiting for it to self sabotage, as we were speaking about the Tennessee legislature earlier. That, or, or, so the folks, the Republicans who of conscious, they should either stay in their party and try and reform it. I don't know about out than that, or get out. Just get out of the party. This is the this game has gone on long enough, and get get behind Liz Cheney. We do need a strong conservative party because that's also how democracy works through the dialectic uh, process of of opposing forces creating synthesis. But this party is just off the rails, corrupt, sick, falling back into white supremacy. Democratic values have been lost. Democratic behavioral values have been lost by the party. So. I, I can't predict the future, but it is my hope that we have a strong and ethical conservative party in the country. I just, you know, when we say that the Republicans are a failed party right now, which I have said myself, then I kind of look at their winning streak across states right now. And yes. I'm thinking to myself, what do we mean when we say failure? Right. Failure to meet up to our expectations, to hold the shared values that this nation was formed on. Or because when you look at how Ron DeSantis has been able to turn Florida into his own white supremacy fiefdom, when you look at the Missouri uh, Republican legislature defunding education, because that's what public libraries are. Right. Like they're they're defunding access to books. They're defunding education. When you look at public libraries, Daniel. Yeah. When you look at when you look at the you know the 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 slate of anti LGBTQ bills, anti trans bills, they are passing, right? Well, and so so if I'm a person, if I'm one of the 75 million people that voted for Donald Trump, and I'm seeing th- this is this is the issue that I have, Eli, is this because the problem with this current machination of the Republican Party is that they're not providing anything for their constituents. What they are doing is instead harming the same people they all collectively hate, right? Mm. So I'm like, so if if the goal at some point isn't just to run the communities that you don't favor into the ground, shouldn't this party be trying to actually do something, provide something for their constituents. And like, if the Democratic Party is so great, why do these kinds of Republicans outside of voter suppression and gerrymandering, which I know are the two main causes, why does the Democratic Party fail to deliver the message that these people are delivering nothing but cruelty? They're actually not. Ask yourself, is your life better from 2016, 2017, than it is right now. Like, what have they done? Mm. Uh, you know, what I think of when you say that is, you know, one of the best books of the past hundred years, I think, which is Isabel Wilkerson's book, Cast. Mm, mm-hmm. yep. Great and book. So, and so this this fight to break out of the caste system to a multiracial, multi-ethnic, you know, multi-gender democracy is a difficult, difficult fight, of course. So you've got incredible backlash taking place with regard to that. But I, I, even if the Republican Party scores victories here and there, I guess that just signifies to me, it can signify a lot of things, but it can signify 
that a lot of people from the old world are scared of what's happening. And so they're reasserting a lot of things. It's not, you know, we, you have fair debates, I think, about uh, folks' views on abortion and things like that. But I do think it's this, the, the, it, the caste system that we're trying to move through. I think that's the number one most important thing. And I'll express what my worry is. <clears throat> Currently, I really do believe, as I've said, I don't want to over-celebrate, but the Democratic Party is um, the place of tremendous hope. Because mm. to my to my views, for the most part, it's an ethical constitutional party. I'm very worried that in the face of these perceptions of defeat, maybe that you're talking about, Democratic Party is going to begin to think we need to get more demagogic. Maybe we need to get a little bit corrupt. We need to start being authoritarian. That's the disaster or nightmare scenario for me, because I, I just wouldn't know what to do. Become a country that has two parties that are founded and based in disinformation and demagoguery and corruption and authoritarianism. E Eli, the Democratic Party is afraid to call itself progressive. So I think we're, 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 we don't have to worry about that right now. Democratic Party is afraid to acknowledge its own shadow, which is black. So we're, we're okay. We're a step away from that. Uh, but, you know, there is, can you connect the dots for us? Because, you know, Danielle, it, it, there's a point that it, Locally, right, the, the the machinery of the GOP is very successful. Specifically, what they have told us openly, what they're doing is they're taking over city councils. They're mm -hmm. taking over board. hospital boards. Mm -hmm. They're taking over school boards. They're taking uh, over poll workers. They're using violence and threats and intimidation. And now there's like studies coming out every week where people are voluntarily seeding the ground. Poll workers are like, I'm done. There's just no way. And you know that the the minority then, by using these threats, just takes over. Uh, city by city by city. And Steve Bannon has said that that's the plan. He says, we went after school boards and now we're got, going after uh, hospital boards. And, you know, speaking about Missouri, uh, Missouri now is on steroids with what DeSantis is doing is that now, you know, they're, they're literally defunding their own libraries to get rid of all the quote unquote woke books. And because you've written about demagogues and, and Danielle was an educator and I'm a writer, talk to us about how this is so imperative for the demagoguery playbook to go after the books, to go after the stories, to go after the multiracial, multicultural curriculum. You know, because I, I think people don't realize that there is a historical precedent here with what's happening. Like, why is this so important for the demagogue? Yeah, <clears throat> I'll, I'll say that just to share my beliefs and understanding after thinking about these things for some time. I will go ahead. I will, I'll just quickly touch on the fact that I think, for example, Trump has four diagnoses. Two of them are clinical. This is my thought. I'm not making a diagnosis because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. my prior career was psychiatry. But narcissistic personality, and most importantly, if people want to look, antisocial personality. There's just no question uh, for the layperson if you look at those that Trump meets these. They're important in a way, but they're nowhere near as important as Trump's political diagnoses. And so you've alluded to, and I started writing early about Trump being a demagogue, but he has also demonstrated and his behavior helped to demonstrate he's authoritarian, <clears throat> but also remarkably the January 6th uh, committee research helped to demonstrate that he is uh, authoritarian. So uh, the best term to use, by the way, for Trump is an authoritarian demagogue. I won't go into why, but we do need to call him a demagogue because if you use that word and you do research in history, whoa, 
you find yourself going back 2,500 years to ancient Athens, and you can come forward and study and understand that the nemesis or Achilles heel of democracy is demagogues. What's happening in the Republican Party, it has something to do, as you're saying, with imitating a global uh, phenomenon like hungry. But But I do think that leadership is paramount. And so Trump has created a cult of personality within the Republican Party that is both demagogic and authoritarian. And so very sadly, uh, throughout the country, as you're making allusion to, there's a sense that this authoritarianism or a first step to that, as I think I mentioned earlier, is constitutional hardball, which means you do everything you can shy of breaking the law in order to push your agenda or defeat the enemy on the other side, of course, and that's a fundamental problem we have. We don't see it as we as we have citizens of differing opinions on the other side, but the enemy on the other side. Uh, but that all, I can just respond to it by saying it's alarming and it's extremely dangerous, but we have no other option but to fight it with all the tools that we have. We have to fight against this. I don't know what the future will be, but we have to fight against it with ethical standards, the best of our democratic um, principles and the best of our democratic behavioral values and political values and protest. Mm -hmm. You just have Mm -hmm. to push back. I know it's unsatisfying and I don't have any other option than that. And could things spiral into worsening violence? Yes. The real question is, if authoritarianism continues to grow in our country, what are those of us who love democracy and liberty and freedom, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? It's up to us. Uh, so that, you know, that could take us to the important question of, of how important it is at times of crisis like we're in now for people to recognize that democracy is a political system of the people and that getting involved in some way on the right side of history behind ethical constitutional democracy, another piece I'll add, rooted, believe it or not, rooted in malice towards none and charity for all is the direction to go. And whether that wins the battle in a year or 10 years or 20 years, I don't know, but that is, that is, that's the beauty of life, those things. So democracy, if we lose it, it will be resurrected. Who knows what will happen in our country? We Mm. could divide, balkanize into separate countries. Maybe one of those, and I'm not talking in 10 years. I, I don't know. We don't know what the future is, but I can tell you this. If, January 6th had been worse, or if we have another thing like January 6th, where the military is involved, and we have the installation of an arbitrary government, what, what are we going to do? Cry about it? No. Eventually, what's going to happen is we're going to work for years and years and years, like during the American Revolution, to try and resolve this through civil disobedience and international intervention. And if that doesn't work, some of us are going to have to break away and try and start a new democracy, maybe California and other this sounds fantasy, and I'm not encouraging it, but it's just a fact. John Locke has taught us. That's the, we started with the principles of John Locke saying, if there's arbitrary government, you have a right of revolution. And again, that can be nonviolent revolution, peaceful revolution. But at some point, if there is the installation of an arbitrary government in our country, mm-hmm. we can either just sit back and say, well, I've lost my liberties and freedoms, but it's not the end of the world. Or we can decide, nope. We're going to establish, we're going to fight, fight this. You know, it's so interesting that you say this because I tell you that, you know, what was it? Seven, eight years ago, if we were having this conversation, I would say that you were crazy. 
all of the things <laughs> that we have lived through and experienced um, over the last seven, including the, the pandemic, right, that showed us many ways in which government can work in our favor and government can work against us, right? Um, we're, we're two sides of the COVID pandemic. The beginning where you had a president telling us it was a hoax and not going to do anything to help us. And then on the other hand, you know, working as quickly as possible, another administration to get shots in arms. When you look at how government can function to actually help the people and do so in a rapid way, and then you see this political party, this Republican party working overtime to destroy, right? Like we saw, you know, we've seen the the derailment that happened in East Palestine and East mm. Palestine, right? Why did that happen? Because the Republican party decided that they were going to deregulate, right? And and not not ensure that we have fast, you know, fast breaking trains because uh, it's too expensive, right? Um, you have all of these things that begin to show you slowly but surely the ways in which the Republican Party is working against the people. And I think just to go back to Waj's, you know, opening with Tennessee is that I feel like Tennessee was just is just so blatant, right? Mm. Like it was as blatant, if not more so than January 6th, right? The 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 question that I have for you, Eli, is that, you know, the scary thing to me about where Trump is headed and Trumpism, not just Trump the person, because we, we've moved beyond the, the, the person, right? That the, the cancer has spread here of, of fascism, of authoritarianism, like it is, the, it, is, it is in the veins of this country right now, is Donald Trump's speech recently in Waco, Texas. Mm. Donald Trump talking about, I alone will be your retribution. This this demagoguery is now televangelism, right? In a in a way that there is this religious war yeah. that these people want, right? That they're willing to sacrifice in so many ways um, in order to see for see through this vision, this imagined vision that they have for this Christo fascist nationalist nation. And I just wonder. In all of the different machinations that you offered, I got to be honest with you, I don't see one that is bloodless. I really don't, because I think that this I think that this Republican Party is so. Their desire is violence, right? The desire when I when you see members of Congress replace flag pins with AR-15s. When you see the former president of the United States go to the site of one of the biggest, you know, cult standoffs, right, that has now become the breeding ground of white nationalism and one of their places, you know, that you visit like Mount Rushmore or, the, you know, or the American. It's like, I don't see how this is bloodless. Am I Daniel, like, don't, don't forget the January 6th choir that he had. Yeah. Yeah. It's 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 quite it's quite scary. So I know that you don't have a crystal ball, but I'm I'm kind of looking. I know that every election is the most consequential, but I'm thinking that this next presidential election may be the most violent that we've seen since the 1800s. Yeah, yeah, it, it might be. <clears throat> and uh, I, I, again, I think the crucial starting point is to recognize that. The Democratic Party is on the right side of history, mm. and uh, and 
And mentioning the word history, I'll share with you that I do not think, I do not think human beings are smart enough by themselves to solve deep, complex problems like the one we're facing right now uh, with our politics today and with the uh, slide into corruption of uh, the Republican Party and the media. So when I say that, I, I, what I really mean to say is we need history. I, I don't know. I, I, I want to be sensitive to you. Is that my bias? Because that's my field. But I, if a thousand other people hadn't said that, I might be concerned. But we need our history books. And we need to know what are all the strategies that have been used to fight against demagoguery, corruption, and authoritarianism. And so we really need to go back to MLK. I mean, there's just never been a more wise and enlightened and caring and loving and fierce person who has fought against these exact same forces. So it, that was relatively bloodless, or at least it was bloodless on the part of uh, those who protested with MLK. But I do also, not because I'm promoting revolution, it's, we, de we need to understand history. And, and remarkably enough, this would be a great, uh, I think, paradox. The founders, of course, who had uh, severe tragic flaws related to slavery, they may actually offer us a playbook for how to proceed in the future at some point. And I want to emphasize when I say that, they were very dedicated for, ye for years and years and years, for at least 10 years, to civil disobedience. And it was only when the British brought about bloodshed that the Americans said, this is important enough. I mean, it's, it's, it's in some ways similar to the problems of today. The white Americans, believe it or not, then felt they were being treated as second-class citizens in the British Empire which again reminds us of the way people of color are treated in the United States today. So I think we need to understand this history. We need to read, read John Locke, not because we're racing for revolution. We mm, just have to mm -hmm. see how these things proceed. And so the real question I think is, and I don't know, again, I'm not even comfortable with us talking about bloodshed, but it, in, the, in the fight for rights and democracy mm -hmm. and freedom, will Democrats be courageous enough and strong enough and self-sacrificing enough to, to, to keep the fight alive and going and ultimately to win it. Eli, that is the question. People are, they're, they're looking at their Instagrams and all of this stuff. So I just don't know. I, I don't know whether that moral courage and commitment to democracy exists sufficiently enough for the fight to continue if it gets to arbitrary government. You know, Eli, my final question is, is precisely uh, about how to fight back. And, and you've written a book about how to save our democracy. And all of us are for the bloodless fighting, uh, using the tools at our disposal, specifically Democrats using their power to flex. And, and, and that takes me to my final question. I have to ask you about this. You know, you're talking about historically, when people realize that they're, they have an arbitrary government or representation, that's when you get discord and that's when you get some people who do dissent and that's when sometimes you get violence. Well, let's look at the Supreme Court. We just found out another whopper of a story that a right-wing billionaire, Harlan Crowe, essentially has bought a Supreme Court seat, Clarence Thomas, you know, showered hundreds of thousands of dollars on him for 20 years. And, and a missing piece that people aren't focusing on is he gave $500,000 to Ginny Thomas's nonprofit, which in turn paid her a hundred twenty thousand dollars salary, right? So, and then Clarence Thomas was aware, and then he says, 
Well, I asked some people and they said I I didn't have to disclose it. Oops, my bad. Mm -hmm. So in my opinion, Mm -hmm. we have a Supreme Mm -hmm. Court majority that has been bought by dark money that has just taken away a 50-year constitutionally protected right. All right. And they're signaled that, by the way, we're going to go after birth control and also marriage equality next. So here the Democrats have at least the Senate. Joe Biden uh, is the president. They barely lost the House. How to save the Supreme Court? Should we at least investigate Thomas? Should we impeach him? Should we now expand the court? Are these now in play when, it, when, we, when we are talking about solutions to fight back? I have some conflicted feelings about uh, the Supreme Court. I agree with uh, everything, or at least most everything that you've just said. But, <laughs> well, no, and my, my, my greatest area of interest, uh, again, to, to, to repeat, is the essential uh, component in democracy of ethical infrastructure, or uh, this thing we call democratic norms or democratic values, and I, I call um, also uh, democratic behavioral values, they are essential. So we do see a crumbling of the ethical infrastructure everywhere around us. And with the Ginny Thomas situation, and at, the, at the same time, I will suggest to you that we've had Bad Supreme Courts throughout American history, very bad. Dred Scott type of Supreme Courts. Here's here's my conflict. I do believe that ultimately we have to respect the rule of law. Mm. We have to respect the rule of law in the Supreme Court. If we don't, we are doing damage to our democracy. So a somewhat like Al Gore said, and I think it was 2001 when he barely lost that election, he said, I really just absolutely disagree with this decision by the Supreme Court, but we live in a nation of laws and the rule of law, so I'm going to submit to it. I, frankly, I, we can, people can strategize in constitutional nonviolent ways what can be done, something like uh, that would be constitutional hardball to expand the Supreme Court, but it's not unconstitutional, so that's one option. Mm-hmm. I think whatever we do, we have to say, gosh, you know, unfortunately, we have to respect the rule of law because if we don't, we'll lose our democracy. So I'm on the side of really criticizing Republicans now for disinformation and demagoguery about the rule of law. So I would hold Democrats to the same standards. Don't don't insult uh, the individuals on, on the Supreme Court. Or no, you, you can do that, but don't. You got to expect. You got to. You got to honor the rule of law, even if the even if the rulings are absolutely horrendous in your view. Yeah, I mean that 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 is fair. We are. I, I got to tell you, um, Eli, I, we really appreciate you making the time to join Democracy Ish to have really difficult conversation, right? Like conversations about, um, as you know, as the book states, your book states how to save democracy is really hard when you're facing when it's no longer a theoretical question, when it you know when it's a real one uh, that we're being faced with on a regular basis. So. Um, we really appreciate you uh, and your work and your time. Uh, thank you for listening to Democracy-ish. I'm Danielle Moody. And I'm Ajat Ali. And we will be back next week if, in fact, we have a country left. Inshallah. Inshallah.